We made it the first week of spring. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, a trip around the world. We go to Palestine, Pakistan, Argentina and the Philippines. But of course, we always begin with Mr Kevin Healy and his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when confected class infected the body of our society as contagiously as the pandemic that continues to infect individual bodies. Expressed on behalf of our classless society by the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, fingering the problems posed by this week's Canberra caring employers and lazy avaricious workers share a common interest talk fest. The evil unions that editorialised were, quote, dragging True Blue Aussie's outdated industrial relations system back to the early 20th century class conflict origins, class struggle, total anathema to caring employers who know there is no such thing. But if only caring employers and individual workers could sit down and negotiate, they would share what they have in common, the profits of the caring employers trickling down to the lazy avaricious. Expressed again by the Capitalist Review, caring employers could be picked off by a union-dominated summit agenda that is not in the best interest of promoting business-led prosperity, telling us we needed to get back to the liberalisation of the workplace that operated during work choices even though we still have, and this bits me, not the Capitalist Review, even though we now still have, no longer work choices just looks like it. And to prove there is no such thing as class struggle, except in the demented minds of evil unions and lazy avaricious workers, caring employers and their puppets, or sorry, representatives, displayed their commitment to a classless society, like our old mate Innes will cost the workers of the Trublawasi Industry Profits Group. Aren't we fortunate to have the benefits of Innes's wise counsel week after week, who said the caring business class associations, the good unions, must avoid working against each other to avoid getting picked off by evil unions? See which bit of that indicates class. None of it. And New South Wales Supremo Dominic Parrott Bossese warned evil unions had hijacked the agenda and that will fail to lift productivity and wages. See, not even a hint of class differences between caring employers and the ingrates they employ. While Hayseed and Cheapshit Party Supremo David Little to be proud of displayed his commitment to a classless society with this is where the big hand of the unions have sick, wrong tense, big hand of the unions have decided they're high up on the steps now they've got a government that owes them its success because they pay the bill for them to get elected. They now have to pay this back and they're going to pay it back with draconian laws. See, not even a hint of class differences. But the innate evil of a union movement bet on maintaining the myth of class struggle that there are conflicts between caring employers and their wage slave, uh, sorry, workers, was expressed in a warning from that great advisor to caring employers and caring business class governments, Herbert Smith Free Kills the Workers, former home of Caring Business Class Party shadowy Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Michaelia Kosh the Workers, 
who would never dream of bringing class into her balanced arguments. The great big end of town legal firm which played a key role in drawing up the aforementioned good, good, no class struggle were choices. Partner Rowan Doyle, real name, warned the evil union sector wide bargaining proposal would likely lead to a significant increase in strikes and could force businesses to move offshore, automate more roles or close altogether. Come on, which bit of that reflects the slightest degree of class difference? Goodness me, doesn't the we're all in this together agenda of these wise true blue Aussies expose the backwardness of the evil union's persistence with class rhetoric? Then to make matters worse, talk this morning, we learned the invitation list was hopelessly lopsided. Well, biased, really. Also revealing the accuracy and integrity we have come to love in our mainstream media as the Capitalist Review headlined, Unions Dominate Meeting at the Expense of Employers. Trade unions will be punching well above their weight at this week's Jobs and Skills Summit with their officials constituting one quarter of the 143 invitees. 35 trade union officials, it went on, the first bit of accuracy, as there are actually 33. But hell, they're so evil, it seems there are more of them. And anyway, that would bring the one quarter back to 23%, not nearly as sexy. And obviously, there must be loads fewer caring business class employers who would not be punching above their weight, loads less than the 33. Well... Perhaps the Capitalist Review might know all about counting profits, but a lesson in arithmetic wouldn't go as There are 53 caring business class invitees, an infinitesimal 37% compared to the evil union's gargantuan 23%, all of which apparently shows the evil unions punching above their weight and the poor caring employers reeling from the blows. Well, at the expense of employers, as the headline headlined, Thank goodness we can rely on such accurate and honest journalism. True Blue Aussie was honoured, very fortunate, to host one of the world's greatest fighters for war is peace. U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world lover of peace through train killing, John Beltham, a former war is peace advisor to former big supremo brackets robbed, Donald Trump or the poor among others, who advised True Blue Aussie we must pour lots and lots more lovely, lovely money into the coppers of the U.S. of merchants of death industry, must create more ambitious train killing political and economic links across the region to address the strategic threat posed by evil China. Uh, strategic threat, John. Absolutely. It threatens the U.S. strategy of controlling the world economy. Oh, how evil. And let me add, it simply makes no sense to have trillions of lovely dollars tied up in merchants of death merchandise and not to use it. I'm a great believer in using all that merchants of death merchandise. I'm a great advocate of not wasting all those lovely dollars. And then after you've used the merchants of death merchandise, you can buy lots more. Win-win. Um, if you're still here, John. Peace is worth fighting and dying for. Um, other people fighting and dying, John. Part of a well-structured, classless society. 
And John says the US of, and presumably with true blue Aussie as usual on its coattails, can thwart evil China by abandoning the one China policy, recognizing Taiwan, and establishing a US of train killer base there. Send in the Marines like it has bases almost everywhere else, preserving peace through train killing. My word, he is on the ball, isn't he? Because establishing a military base in Taiwan to deter evil China should work a treat. Well, from his point of view, it would work a treat. He, he would enjoy the train killing he so cherishes, as long as other people are doing the kill-and-be-killed bit. Of course, John was one of the so-called neocons who so wisely advised another former U.S. of Supremo, George W. Bash, the workers. Indeed, John made the other neocons look like peaceniks. Thanks to him, for instance, just this week, 23 people were killed and 140 injured in clashes between the two factions claiming to be the government of Libya. Exactly. What was evil, Libya, is now enjoying the benefits of being liberated by the U.S. of and our very good friends. Uh, your very good friends. And they continue to be very good friends as long as they do what we tell them. Once again, another of those very good friends, liberty, freedom and democracy-loved Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Selmoral Man, displayed why he is a favourite of all who love a little bit of liberty, freedom and democracy, like John Belton and current US of Supremo Joe Biden Capital, and, well, true blue Aussie for that matter, and of course that bastion of democracy and freedom Zion by, well... There have to be some limits to freedom so liberty, freedom and democracy can flourish. Little limits like it's a capital crime to express opposition to the prince and his extended family of Democrats. Like a young bloke arrested in 2017 when he was 21 for demonstrating, demonstrating what a criminal several years earlier when he was much younger than 21 and a major crime figure arrested in 2014 when he was 19 for the heinous crimes of participating in demonstrations and marches attending funerals for victims of the royal family's policies and wait for it the cruelest most serious crime of all distributing water during demonstrations for those crimes that after being held in a friendly Saudi jail for all these years, this week both young men were sentenced to death. Doubtless, yet again, the response from the usual liberty, freedom and democracy-loving world will be silence. John might even congratulate Bin Selmoral Man for his commitment to law and order and liberty and freedom and democracy. And there won't be too many young Saudis demonstrating and marching against the sentences and or committing the capital crime of providing them with water. And finally, back where we started. Our chief health advisor and caring business class relations expert, Innes, commenting on the class rubbish of the evil unions at the Talkfest, a clear red line for industry is the potential for unions to engage in industrial action in pursuit of multi-party bargaining claims. This has the potential to shut down key parts of our economy. Shame and a disgrace, showing how all this has brought the caring business class and evil unions together so successfully.
although it would have been even more successful but for the evil unions raising class where class doesn't exist. If but, lazy avaricious workers could be satisfied with that yellow liquid trickling down. Good afternoon. Stay locked to 3CR. Last week, what has been called devastating news, an Israeli court sentenced humanitarian worker Mohammed El Halabi to 12 years jail. Mohammed was the director of World Vision in Gaza when he was arrested by Israeli authorities and accused of diverting millions of Australian taxpayer dollars to Hamas. He has been in jail since that time. The person in charge of World Vision at the time, the Reverend Tim Costello, on hearing the verdict said, Mohammed's trial was deeply flawed and a mockery of due process and the most basic fair trial notion. This is a complete travesty of justice constructed by Israel for ideological reasons to frame an innocent man. No money at all went missing. I spoke yesterday with Jessica Morrison, the Executive Officer of Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, one of many groups who have been supporting Mr El Halabi over those past six years, and asked her to take us through those six years of travesty of justice. Uh, so Mohammed El Halabi was running World Vision Office in Gaza, when he was accused of funneling 50 million US dollars to Hamas. Aid money, Australian aid money, World Vision found no money missing, not a cent, certainly not 50 million dollars, their own investigation, and found no evidence of wrongdoing. So that was over six years ago. He's been on this trial for years when there is no scarce of public evidence that any money went missing he did anything wrong. None of those things have any evidence. And Israel has been on this trial for six years. There was another three months between the verdict and sentencing. Um, and World Vision have continued to back him. Um, they've backed his, his legal case. They've been there at the trial. The judgment is the most bizarre I've ever read in my life. Um, it reads more like an opinion piece than a legal verdict. And it says, World Vision people were just biased. What would they know? You know, the investigation that World Vision launched, I mean, it was by Deloitte, you know. They spent a significant amount of money on this independent audit, and the Israeli court just rejected it out of hand the evidence that was given by World Vision. A number of charges, including the siphoning of this, and then a horrifically last sentence into 12 years in jail. So that would be another six years in jail, for a man where there is absolutely no evidence that he did anything wrong. Well, what was the prosecution's case? The prosecution predominantly relied on secret evidence. Uh, a mole inside the prison who was working with Israel said that they were able to gain a confession from Muhammad al-Halabi in jail. So he certainly denies that he gave it, but that's what Israeli courts are relying on to sentence a man for 12 years in jail, a fellow prisoner allegedly taking a confession. What's been the reaction to this sentence, Jessica? Yeah, I mean, World Vision themselves were horrified. They said the verdict and the sentencing bears no resemblance to the facts and the evidence that were even presented in the court case. Um, the US 
State Department raised concerns about it. So, you know, like there, there's certainly been some concerns, but what do you do? Tim Costello, who, who was the former manager of World Vision in Australia, this is a travesty of justice. Um, Amnesty International Human Rights Watch that this man um, has been subject to an unfair trial. Um, and before that, nobody, no, none of the UN bodies, none of the NGOs um, feel like there is anything that was just or fair about this trial that this man endured for over six years. And the Australian government was involved in some way with this case the former government, the Australian government, have been terrible and want to say that this, even though clearly we've got a skin in this game, he was accused of stealing our money. So they're not actually just impugning one man in suggesting that he stole our aid money. They're impugning Mohammed Al-Halabi, World Vision and the Australian government. So clearly we do have a skin in the game because Israel suggesting that we could let somebody siphon off $50 million under our noses and have nothing to do with it. Whereas you talk to anybody who works in international aid, I tell you that the Australian government has incredibly stringent spend. So um, while Australia, um, since the new government, has certainly sent, sent people to the last public statements about his trial, which is deeply disappointing because we've certainly seen two happening in Myanmar and other places around the world. And there's plenty of other... Unfortunately, Palestinians in jail, and one man has been in jail for I'm not quite sure how long, but he has endured 172 days of a hunger strike. What's the story there? Absolutely. Um, so, yes, Jan, this is Phil Awadea. He um, is one of 4,500 Palestinians who are in Israeli jails and one of 650. 70 Palestinians that are held in what Israel calls administrative detention. So that's 670 Israeli jails with no charges, no trial. So under Israeli military law, you can be held for six months under administrative detention, pop into an Israeli military court and get that extended and extended and extended. So there are Palestinians who have been in administrative detention for years. When um, Khalil Awadeya soon went on a hunger strike because he knew what was coming, he um, endured a whole six months under administrative detention, most of which he was under hunger strike. And then a couple of weeks ago, that he was due to be uh, detained until December this year with not a charge, not a trial, nothing. Whereas he has just just secured. Um, an agreement that he will be released in October, which is a great win, and the Palestinian community are really excited about it. But as you can imagine, after 172 days of hunger striking, he's only had water. On um, a few times, he had some vitamin pills in in June, but since March, he has hasn't had solid food. So certainly, he's neurological damage, he's likely to have damage to his, his organs and it's likely that he will now be in quite significant hospital treatment until his release in October. It's a horrible time and I guess Khalil, like many Palestinians, feel like when Israel is able to hold them, you know, indefinitely really, without any charge, hunger strikes have been used bravely and persistently by Palestinians throughout the a period of the Israeli occupation and is often a tactic to try and stop these ridiculously long administrative detentions.
Well, while one man comes out of hunger strike, there is a report that a thousand others have undertaken hunger strike. Yeah, well, I guess in general sense, like that's what we see and what inspires people in the Palestinian solidarity movement, that when one Palestinian, thousands of others behind them, that's what's occurred throughout the hunger strikes. There's often one or two things and then many others come in behind. One of the organisations that were raided last week and their premises shut down and their information stolen is actually a group that supports Palestinian prisoners. Absolutely. Adamir Prison Support and Human Rights Association is one of these seven organisations that Israel has um, absolutely attempted to squash and they have been a long-term organisation that supported prisoners. So in terms of the story of these NGOs, um, last October, Israel designated six non-government organisations and there was a massive outcry. Nothing like this has ever been done before in terms of human rights monitoring organisations. They what on earth, they've, they've, what evidence they've used. The UN Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights Michelle Batchelor said back late last year that the decision seemed arbitrary and further erode the civic and humanitarian space in the occupied Palestinian territories. Um, so it seemed that Israel was just going to let this go um, because they clearly had provided evidence. The international community was demanding that evidence. European Union began reading of these organisations. They found no suspicion of any irregularities or of any fraud and there wasn't even grounds to open an investigation. So in June, all organisations were recommended to be funded again. Uh, the CIA even said they can't find any evidence to back up Israel's claims. But Israel literally welded shut the doors of these organisations after raiding cases, arresting their staff. Um, so it's a horrendous escalation in Israel's attempt to silence Palestinian human rights organisations. And also to silence non-government organisations coming from other, other countries, including Australia. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, the case of Hullaby wasn't a case against one isolated individual. Um, and World Vision have been very clear that the attacks on Mohammed al-Hullaby are meant to chill anybody who wants to stand in solidarity with Palestinians in a humanitarian way. So these attacks on humanitarian organisations with the attacks on human rights organisations and all are very clear. And it's an attempt to scare anybody from daring to stand with Palestinians for their basic rights. So what can be done for these groups now? Yeah, I think, well, I think the first thing is that we must acknowledge that we cannot be silenced and we cannot let um, anybody scare us, whether it's China or Myanmar or Russia or Israel, we cannot let any country act in a way that's right. So I think that's the most important thing to start with. So the most important things are that if any of these organisations are receiving funding, then they continue to receive, um, that we continue to speak the names of who are being imprisoned and the organisations that are standing up for Palestinian human rights and not allowing them to be smeared. Al-Haq is one of the other organisations that is a legal advocacy group. Um, Defence for Children of Children International is another one of the organisations and the international group. So find these groups online and share some of their social media posts because we will not accept Israel's smear that there is any issues with these organisations.
to make right advocacy. Thanks, Jessica. Lovely. Thanks, Karen. And I've been speaking with Jessica Morrison, who's the Executive Officer of APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. And I'll just read out the details of the groups that have been shut down by the Israeli Armed Forces. Adamir. Established in 1991, Adamir provides free legal representation to Palestinian political prisoners held in Israeli and Palestinian Authority prisons and offers guidance to hundreds of Palestinian detainees and their families each year. Monitors the living conditions of detainees through regular prison visits and publishes research and advocacy material. Al-Haq, founded in 1979, Al-Haq is one of the leading Palestinian human rights organisations operating in the Palestinian territories illegally occupied by Israel in 1967. Al-Haq works with local and international rights groups in Palestine and pushes for Israeli accountability at the ICC. The Defence of Children International, Palestine. The Geneva-based organisation's Palestine chapter is a children's rights group that provides free legal aid to Palestinian children detained and prosecuted in the Israeli juvenile military court system. The group has developed a reputation for successfully limiting the time children spend in prison and publishes key reports and information on the issues of child prisoners. The Union of Agricultural Work Committee, the UAWC, was established in 1986 as a response to the difficult socio-political conditions facing Palestinian farmers due to the Israeli occupation's restrictions on access to natural resources. It provides hands-on aid to Palestinians, including by rehabilitating land at risk of confiscation and helping tens of thousands of farmers in Area C, the more than 60% of the occupied West Bank under direct Israeli military control and where all illegal Israeli settlements and settlement infrastructure are located. The Health Work Committee, HWC, a Palestinian healthcare organisation founded in 1985, the HWC runs two Palestinian hospitals in the occupied West Bank as well as dozens of clinics. The group said it aims to build sustainable health infrastructure for all segments of society, particularly the poor and marginalised. Although not one of the six organisations designated by Israel as a terrorist group last year, the HWC was nevertheless shut down with a military order banning its operation. The Union of Palestinian Women's Committee, UPWC, was established in 1980. The UPWC works to empower Palestinian women at all levels and to contribute to the Palestinian national struggle against the Israeli military illegal occupation of the Palestinian territories. And the Bissan Centre for Research and Development, a civil society and rights organisation formed in 1989, which works with youth, labour workers, 
impoverished communities and women to achieve socio-economic rights in the context of national liberation. If you can look up these groups on social media and do what you can to assist. Stay tuned in to 3CR Community Radio. Our last history of Latin America and the Caribbean with PhD candidate and journalist Sasha Gillies-Lakakis was the Caribbean nation of Haiti. Today we travel to the far south of the continent of South America to Argentina, which shares a border with Chile, Bolivia, Uruguay, Brazil and Paraguay. A country in shock at the attempted assassination of Vice President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner on the 1st of September. We'll hear more about that in the second part of this interview next week. But for today, Sasha, your starting date. For Argentina, it would have to be the independence wars. Uh, But just before we get there, I do want to mention, as I always do when we discuss Latin American countries, uh, that Argentina has a very diverse and proud tradition of indigenous knowledge production. Going back as far as 10,000 years ago, um, and in particular in Argentina, because such a large and geographically diverse, really, really rich sort of range of different indigenous civilizations that continue to inhabit the country today. So, for example, we have... You know, some pretty advanced hunter-gatherer societies, the Mapuche in Patagonia, so that's the southern desert, uh, and of course one of the most well-known groups, um, very well-known in Chile. Uh, and then up in the north there were also pretty advanced farming communities, indigenous farming communities up in the northern Pampas, which is like a grassland region, and those areas were actually incorporated to Inca Empire because the Inca Empire actually stretched as far south as northern Argentina. So we had some really, really inhabiting Argentina, or what would become Argentina. Uh, the Spanish didn't get to Argentina until 1516, because, of course, they get to Mexico and Central America and the Caribbean about 20, 30 years before that. They do found Buenos Aires, what is today the capital of Argentina, in 1536, a bit of backwater compared to other parts of Latin America within the Spanish Empire. Argentina back then did not have deposits to speak of, uh, and the sugar wealth of the Caribbean was non-existent in Argentina to tap into the vast potential wealth of agriculture in Argentina, which today is the country, one of the country's main earners. Um, and there was also no, no oil exploration, obviously, back in the 1500s. So the Spanish really didn't have a lot of incentive to industrialise and use and exploit Argentina as other parts of Latin America. Indigenous peoples of Argentina actually were very successful in repelling the Spanish colonists, particularly the Mapuche in Patagonia, totally wiped out the Spanish expeditionary forces uh, to the point where Argentina, in the Spanish sense, so the part of Argentina under Spanish control, was only actually two-thirds of what is today Argentina because they just couldn't conquer Patagonia because the Mapuche was so well-coordinated. This sort of status quo of backwater exists until the 18th century. And by this point, Buenos Aires is healthy city, particularly because it sits on a very, very strategic inlet. It's on the de la Plata, which got Brazil. It's also very close to the capital city of Uruguay, Uruguay, which is also founded by this point. And a lot of the silver and the gold coming from Peru and Bolivia and Mexico is actually exported to Europe. So there's a lot of money being made by the Spanish elite, if only because of the strategic location. Again, you know, there's this, there's this sort of status quo until 1807, 
Peninsular War in Napoleon invades Spain and overthrows the Bourbon monarchy. This happens, as happens in a lot of Latin American countries, uh, we begin to see the stirrings of independence in Argentina. With the king deposed, the more independence-minded merchants, the elite in Buenos Aires, to think, well, we don't need a king to rule us. They're looking at what's happening in the rest of Latin America. You know, Simón Bolívar in Venezuela and Colombia. He's beginning to achieve a string of victories, military victories against the Spanish. And the Argentinian criollo elite are beginning to think we can start to take matters into our own hands and establish a independent republic in Argentina. And this ends up happening, the so-called May Revolution, which is widely recognised as being the beginning of the wars for independence. So this elite in Buenos Aires, and they begin fighting against Spanish royalists. So even though Buenos Aires is freed, they also need to begin liberating the interior of the country. It's altogether different beast because, of course, there's vast tracts of land uh, controlled by chiefly rural landlords, which are very, very conservative in their attitude. They're very against Buenos Aires and that sort of urban elite. Uh, and they would rather with the Spanish colonists. One of the heroes, San Martin, he returns in 1814 to lead the charge against the royalist forces, and he is outstanding because not only does he free Argentina through his military tactics, uh, but he also ends up liberating Chile and Peru as well. San Martin through you know, the northern tip of Peru, and Simón Bolívar through Venezuela and Colombia and Ecuador uh, at the same point. So the two... Major Latin American independence across uh, actually in half of the continent each, and then they meet together, which I think is quite poetic, and it did actually happen. A number of countries don't actually recognise Argentinian independence. Uh, Spain, chief among them, doesn't recognise Argentina until the 1830s, um, and Britain doesn't recognise Argentina until the 1820s. Now, one of the reasons for this is, unfortunately, the fighting and the conflict and the bloodshed doesn't end once the Spanish are expelled, because now there is, of course, that eternal battle, as happens across Latin America, over what exactly Argentina should look like now that it's independent. And there are two dominant factions that emerge, but they're a bit different from the normal liberal conservative dichotomy that takes root in other parts of Latin America. So in Argentina, what we have are the so-called Unitarians. So these are the bourgeoisie in Buenos Aires that I was talking about earlier. And their vision for Argentina is for essentially the rest of the country to be dominated by the capital city. They think that the rural areas should be subservient to Buenos Aires, that they should all provide their export produce straight to the city and that the city will control how much money the rural provinces get and that the city will control export to Europe and to the rest of the world and to North America. And of course, this engenders a fierce, fierce backlash from the so-called federalists. Now, the federalists are chiefly rural, they're rural landlords, but they're also rural peasants and the so-called gauchos, which are essentially cowboys, the Argentinian version of cowboys, um, but they normally have quite a progressive role in Argentinian history. It's more a sort of Robin Hood-esque role in Argentina, where they raided wealthy towns and wealthy supply routes and would redistribute that wealth among communities. So very local level sort of activity. But these groups are fiercely against the Unitarians. They believe that Argentina should operate as a sort of federal republic so that each province has quite a lot of power and independence over its economy and its political structure. They do not want this urban bourgeoisie in Buenos Aires to take power and to dictate the rules of engagement for trade and economy across Argentina. So this becomes the new theatre 
of conflict in Argentina. Up until about 1829, we have the Unitarians in power. The Unitarians, they're fighting against the Federalist insurgency, um, so they still don't have control over a lot of the rural areas of Argentina, but Buenos Aires is protected. We have a lot of trade still coming from Brazil, coming from Uruguay, coming from other parts of Latin America to the point where Buenos Aires can still function properly and still make obscene amounts of money and fund its forces, its armed forces very well, even though the provinces are still in revolt. But this begins to change, particularly by 1828, when we have the so-called Cisplatine War. So this was the war over Uruguay's independence. And Argentina, um, unfortunately, fails in its objective to, to liberate Uruguay. So Brazil had conquered Uruguay and Argentina declares war on Brazil. And unfortunately, it's, it's disastrous for both sides. But unfortunately, Argentina is unable to achieve independence for Uruguay. Eventually, Brazil does have to give independence to that country a few years later anyway, because the war has also damaged Brazil's military capacity. But the Liberals become quite unpopular because of this military defeat against Brazil. And so what happens is the Federalists gain the upper hand. The Buenos Aires' army is weakened in this conflict with Brazil, and the Federalists march into Buenos Aires, and they're led by one of the, really one of the key figures of Argentinian history, post-independence history, and his name is Juan Manuel de Rosas. This man is very, very controversial to this day in Argentina. He was a federalist, so he came from the rural areas of Argentina, so he was very against the bourgeoisie in Buenos Aires. He was firmly opposed to foreign intervention in Argentina. He was extremely anti-Western, if you want to use that terminology. He was hostile to the British and to the French. He was hostile to Brazil, uh, which was a very pro-European country at the time under the monarchy of Pedro. And he implemented protectionist policies in Argentina. So there were immense tariffs on Argentinian products, particularly cattle products, which was now the main source of revenue for Argentina. In fact, the country grew very, very wealthy off of cattle exports and meat exports. And he actually fought wars. Rosas fought wars against France and Britain because they actually blockaded Buenos Aires when he took power. Uh, after they heard that he was going to take this more independence approach with, with Argentina's economy and politics. And they tried to strangulate Argentina's economy, but he actually defeated the British and the French and drove them from Argentina's waters. And he actually also engaged in very independent foreign policy, very sovereign foreign policy. For example, his closest ally was Paraguay, which at the time was also developing along these very sort of protectionist, independent-minded lines. Now, Paraguay at the time was actually a very, very progressive country. It had a very strong social security net. Even by today's standards in Latin America, Paraguay back then would have exceeded most Latin American countries today. So Argentina under Rosas was quite progressive in this regard, um, but there is a dark side to his rule as well. He was an intensely conservative individual. He was very, very nationalistic in the worst kind of way, unfortunately. Um, he was very, very religious as well, and he actually founded a number of Catholic militias that would go around and kill atheists. They would kill supporters of the Unitarians in Buenos Aires. He really did institute quite a harsh series of repressions against his enemies and against those people that were seen to be deviating from this traditional ideal that Rosas was trying to build for Argentina. And he was also very, very hostile towards Argentina's indigenous peoples. And he led a number of raids against the Mapuche 
in Patagonia. Again, he was unsuccessful. He could not defeat them. But just goes to show that in spite of this very, very independent-minded rule on the one hand, he's very controversial because of this other aspect of his rule. So, the, you know, the more sort of social and cultural aspects. To this day, Rosas is a very important figure. He's revered by both left-wing Argentinians and right-wing Argentinians for very different reasons. But it just goes to show, you know, that Argentina really is, is this country of contradictions and this eternal battle over what the country should be and how the country should behave. Rosas cements his power, you know, in spite of these very controversial aspects of his rule. He's very, very popular, particularly in the rural areas of Argentina. And he's constantly fighting against secession and foreign interference. So as I said, the Europeans and Brazil were constantly trying to antagonize Argentina under his rule. Buenos Aires was constantly trying to secede from Argentina because he was a federalist. He was against the rule of the capital city. And eventually, um, I mean, he rules up to 1853, which is an you know, incredible amount of time. You know, it's over two decades. He ends up uh, coming under pressure from his own supporters to uh, hold elections and to implement a new constitution. So he was still operating with the very early Argentinian constitution, the first constitution of the country um, that was a wartime constitution. So it gave Rosas vast amounts of power and very little oversight from Argentina's legislative bodies. Um, but Rosas refuses. He's adamant that he's going to keep ruling Argentina virtually as a, you know, as a dictator because, you know, he has this vision for the country and he thinks that it will be, you know, subjected to foreign rule if he's left, um, if he's removed from power. But of course, you know, when he takes this very hardline stance, his own supporters end up removing him from power. So other federalists essentially coup Rosas and what we have is another period of civil war, protracted civil war between the Unitarians and the Federalists. And by 1862, the Federalists have lost and the Liberals take power again. This is the first period in which Argentina is fully unified. Uh, prior to that point, there was constant secession, civil war, declarations of independence from different provinces. So in 1862, Argentina is properly unified and the liberals take power. Liberal rule is very, very different from Rosas and from the Federalists. They totally open up Argentina's economy, so they get rid of all of the protectionist measures, the tariffs. Um, they become very, very close allies of the British in particular, but also the French and the United States. And they're very, very eager to foster this sort of cooperation with European powers. So, you know, this is a total reversal of the, the more independent foreign policy of Rosas and the Federalists. And what ends up happening is there's intense British penetration into the Argentinian economy to the point where, you know, it is estimated that the British controlled well over 80% of Argentina's uh, economy in the form of banks and those other sorts of financial institutions. So Argentina became heavily, heavily compromised once the Liberals took power. And their foreign policy also takes a very decisive shift in Latin America as well. And this becomes very, very unpopular among Argentina's citizenry because the Argentinians turn on Paraguay, which was a long-time ally of Argentina. Paraguay was still pursuing this very independent and sovereign course. And the new Liberal governments in Argentina conspire with Brazil and with Uruguay uh, and with Bolivia to attack Paraguay 
they all end up attacking Paraguay in the War of the Triple Alliance to essentially overthrow this progressive government in Paraguay. It's an absolutely horrific war for Paraguay, of course, as if Paraguay would win against Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, and then Bolivia a bit later. They end up losing, some estimates say, over 50% of their male population. So it's pretty much a genocide in Paraguay conducted by these other Latin American powers. And they then take parts of Paraguay for themselves. So Paraguay was actually much larger than it is today, but Argentina and Brazil, Uruguay, Bolivia end up dividing the spoils and they carve up Paraguay and leave it as this little rump state. So this is very imperialist sort of activity from Argentina. And the Argentinian people were very, very against this war because a lot of Argentinians died in this conflict as well. You know, even though Paraguay was vastly outnumbered, their soldiers are actually fighting to defend their territory. So up to 20,000 Argentinian soldiers actually died in this conflict. So it wasn't a small number. It wasn't insignificant. And a lot of people were against the Liberal governments for that betrayal of Paraguay, um, but also for the disastrous conduct of the campaign, which um, you know could have been done a lot better and there could have been a lot less casualties, particularly because they were allied with Brazil, which was such a large power. Where was the U.S.? during all these years of war within South America? Were they just watching or were they taking sides? What was going on? Yeah, so the very interesting thing about Argentina, actually about the southern cone of Latin America more generally, is that the United States didn't take an interest until a fair bit later. Um, The United States at this time, not to mention that they're still dealing with their own civil war in the 1860s, uh, but they're a lot more focused on Mexico and Central America. Of course, you know, that conflict with the United States on the Mexican border is taking place. America is very interested in the Caribbean, very interested in the northern part of South America, Colombia, Venezuela, and all that part. But the south, the southern cone of Latin America, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, that's an altogether different beast, at least at this time. Uh, Because, of course, you know, we can't forget, globally speaking, the British Empire is still very, very dominant. And, you know, they still have a lot of control over global capital. The United States hasn't fully asserted itself yet as the new imperialist hegemon. So the British, uh, and to a lesser extent the French, come to be dominant in these southern markets, so in Argentina and Chile and Uruguay. Really up until the, the start of the 20th century, the British are the dominant force in Argentina, you know, in terms of a, a sort of neo-colonial relationship. They're the ones that have taken control of Argentinian banks. They're the ones that are offering these extortionate loans that the Argentinian elites are taking for their own benefit, but at the expense of their country. So in this sense, the United States isn't as involved in Argentina yet, but we will get there later, of course. What ends up happening, these massive changes in Argentina's economy, you know, this turn from protectionism towards the free market ideology um, and the sort of foreign penetration into the Argentinian economy and a reduction in the value of the Argentinian peso all leads to an economic crisis in 1873 where the Argentinian economy begins to dip, wages begin to drop. There's sort of a, a growing discontent among the working class in Argentina. The Liberal president at the time, Nicolás Avellaneda, he believes that the only way to sort of save the Liberal government is for a military campaign again, so a military victory. And he enlists his war minister, Julio Roca, to essentially conduct a new campaign against the indigenous communities in Patagonia. 
so this campaign becomes known as La Conquista del Desierto, the conquest of the desert, um, of course referring to the inhospitable southern region of Patagonia where the Mapuche have still held out against the Argentinian government. And Roca leads a very, very brutal campaign against the Mapuche. And this time he's successful. You know, he did what the Spanish couldn't do. He did what the post-independence governments couldn't do. Uh, Roca is totally violent and brutal in his suppression of the Mapuche people. He fully conquers the rest of Argentina. So modern-day Argentina, the borders that we know today come into existence by about 1885-1886. Thousands of Mapuche are killed and most of the others are moved off into remote reservations or they're relocated to the peripheries of urban centres like Buenos Aires and they just are forced to eke out an existence virtually in indigenous slums. And this, of course, opens up vast new resources for the new Argentinian government. And Roca becomes very popular, at least, you know, amongst white Argentinian part of the population. He ends up turning on the president, on um, Avellaneda Nicolás, and he forms his own party, the National Autonomous Party, and he wins elections in 1880. So that's in the middle of his campaign against the Mapuche. He's still, he's an interesting figure. He's not quite a liberal as the previous government, but he's definitely not a sort of federalist or an independence-minded person either. This very bizarre, amorphous figure who changes his policies to suit the time. And he ends up ruling until 1914. So 1880 to 1914, that's a vast amount of time that Roca is in power. He creates essentially a network of very personal political alliances with rural landlords and with urban merchants. So he essentially makes sure that he controls everyone. He becomes this puppet master in Argentina where nothing can really get done without his approval or without him knowing. He implements quite a few changes in Argentina's economic and political spheres. Uh, firstly, he begins industrialising agriculture. So instead of, you know, just large rural cattle estates, he begins sort of mechanising and, and modernising the technology that's used on those farms and in other farms for different crops, um, which is a boon to Argentina's economy. The country gets very, very wealthy during this period. And he also encourages European immigration, so chiefly from Italy and Germany. It's a very popular destination for these migrants. In fact, a large number of Argentinians today have German or Italian descent because of this period when Roca was, was you know, compelling Europeans, particularly poor Europeans, to come and work in the different industries that Argentina was developing. So very, very similar to what Australia did post-World War II, you know, when, when they were encouraging workers from depressed parts of Europe to come and contribute to the construction of infrastructure and to stop this worker shortage. That's exactly what Roca did in the 1880s, the 1890s, and at the start of the 20th century. Now, he also gets into a bit of trouble with the Catholic Church because he implements a law that guarantees universal, free, but non-religious education for all children. Uh, now, of course, the Catholic Church is very, very powerful in Argentina, and they are very, very hostile to this policy, and to Roca generally, because Roca is a secularist. He's very against the church having any sort of dominance in affairs that he deems are affairs of the Argentinian state. So that's education, healthcare. He's very, very against the church being involved in the provision of medical services as well. And this leads to a very sort of tense relationship between the Roca government and the Catholic Church. 
All of these changes are also accompanied by a massive accumulation of wealth. As I said, the economy in Argentina at this time is booming. And by the late 1880s and the early 1890s, Buenos Aires is actually one of the wealthiest cities on earth. In fact, some studies have suggested it was the wealthiest city on earth for a time, just because, as I said, you know, it's, it's strategic um, location um, at the, the mouth of the Rio de la Plata. It was a really good place to facilitate exports to the rest of the world from Latin America. Um, and it also imported a lot for this growing rich class in Buenos Aires, this growing bourgeoisie. So it was a very, very wealthy city. Um, there was a massive accumulation of capital in Buenos Aires and to a lesser extent in other parts of Argentina. But this, of course, led to the emergence of you know, the Argentinian oligarchy. So the, the, the growth of this very, very rich, very, very powerful but very, very conservative Argentinian ruling elite. And this, of course, leads to a massive wave of strikes against these sorts of policies. Workers' rights are eroding during this time. Of course, that's the price of increased wealth for the oligarchy. And there's a massive wave of strikes, um, and particularly after the European immigrations, because there was... Uh, you know, a long tradition of strikes in Europe, particularly in countries like Italy. So that was transplanted to Argentina. And we see this nascent, very powerful workers' movement emerge in Argentina. And because Argentina is industrialising at such a rapid rate, the Argentinian union movement becomes one of the strongest in Latin America, if not the entirety of the Americas. It's a very powerful workers' movement that takes place. Strikes can paralyse the Argentinian economy. And there's a concurrent rise in left-wing activity associated with these unions. In particular, anarchists become very, very prominent in Argentina, and they begin attacking a lot of these oligarchs, supporters of the Roca government, in terrorist bombings, all these sorts of things. So Roca is very quickly finding that he can't control this massive surge of workers' movements and of left-wing movements and opposition to his rule. He doesn't end up having to deal with the ramifications of his policies because he dies in 1914. A man, Hippolito Irigoyen, takes his place. Now, Irigoyen was the leader of the Radical Civic Union Party. They were linked to the trade union movement in Argentina. So they had accompanied very large revolts in 1893 and 1905. So they were sort of um, the political face of the workers' movement. They weren't communists or leftists by any stretch of the imagination, but they were very, very opposed to this sort of rapid accumulation of wealth, chiefly because it was destabilising Argentinian society. Irigoyen wins the 1916 election just two years after Roca passes away. What happens is, unfortunately, Irigoyen has a very progressive platform, but the Argentinian Congress is still ruled by Roca's party, the National Autonomous Party. So, you know, even a very moderate land reform that Irigoyen attempts to approve is rejected by Roca's allies in the Argentinian Congress. Um, but nonetheless, Irigoyen manages to make a few changes. He enshrines the right to strike in 1921, which is very, very important. You know, not only in the context of Argentina, but in the context of the world when workers' rights at this time coming under attack and workers' movements were taking action to defend their interests. So this is a very important milestone. Additionally, Irigoyen maintains neutrality for Argentina during World War One. He quite rightfully claims that World War One is just intra-imperialist conflict, that there's no point then supporting, for example, the British and the French and the Americans against the Germans and the Austrians and the Turks, uh, because they're just all, they're all exploitative empires and Argentina doesn't need to support either side. Additionally, he continues to maintain relations 
with the Soviet Union, in spite of the fact that the US and Europe at the time are essentially pushing for the entire world to embargo the USSR. Irigoyen uh, refuses to do this, so Argentina continues trading with Russia. And he also supports Sandino in Nicaragua, so he takes up the mantle of some other very progressive causes in Latin America, and Argentina's clout, you know, as this economically powerful country, is very, very significant uh, in this regard. He wins again uh, in 1928 in the elections in that year, and he wants to push his program even further. So he wants to um, enshrine even more workers' rights. He wants to enshrine a certain wage, a certain salary for unionised workers so that companies can't reduce it ever. Uh, irrespective of the conditions in Argentina or what government comes after Irigoyen. Of course, this intensifies the conservative backlash to his government and to the radical civic union party. And he ends up being overthrown in 1930 by the Argentinian military. And in particular, by a very small fascist clique within the army. Uh, and the general who comes to be the new president is Jose Felix Uriburu. He's a very, very strong admirer of Hitler and Mussolini and of Franco in Spain. And he overthrows Irigoyen and essentially establishes a fascist dictatorship until 1932. So there's about 2,000 illegal executions during this time. He bans trade union activity, he bans trade unions, he outlaws political parties. And this begins what is called the infamous decade in Argentina, La Decada Infama, which is a very dark period for Argentina. It's, of course, also the Great Depression. All of this upheaval and the military coup only serves to exacerbate the economic crisis in Argentina. And, of course, by this time, Argentina is very interconnected with European capital and North American capital. So the Great Depression really impacts the country. Thankfully, Uriburu, the fascist general, takes things too far even for his own allies and he attempts to alter the constitution to essentially enshrine fascism and the rule of the military permanently in Argentina. Uh, now the conservative business owners and the conservative magnates that had initially supported the coup are quite against this. They don't want the military to have this sort of extreme degree of control permanently in Argentina. So they end up essentially funding a more moderate faction within the army and that more moderate faction overthrows Uriburu and the fascist clique and they transfer power to the conservatives in Argentina. So still very, very close to the military establishment, but they are not as extreme as Uriburu and the fascists. Can I take you back a little, Sasha, to the attempted assassination of President Herbert Hoover? What was he doing there? This is actually very interesting and it ties into a lot of what I was saying before about this sort of mobilisation of of left-wing movements and of trade unions and workers' movements in Argentina because, as I said before, the United States previously in the 19th century was not as involved in Argentina as other powers, but by the turn of the century, North America and the United States particularly is heavily interested in Argentina's economic potential and, of course, particularly in all the trade around Buenos Aires. So the United States has begun to take a great interest in Argentina. They've really penetrated the Argentinian economy. They end up taking over, superseding British investment in Argentina. They end up being one of the major loan providers or donors for the Argentinian government or for consecutive Argentinian governments. And they're very, very keen to maintain control of the economy in Argentina because of how lucrative it is. And, you know, Herbert Hoover was 
visiting Argentina as a means of strengthening this sort of emerging alliance between the economic elite in Argentina and the US government. But of course, this US interference, I mean, was not new to the region. Argentinians had seen what had happened, for example, in Haiti, in Panama, in Nicaragua, in Mexico. You know, they were well aware that this meant Argentinian subservience to the United States. And it was actually an anarchist group that attempted to kill Herbert Hoover. All left-wing groups were very, very opposed to this sort of deepening alliance between Argentina and the United States. But it just goes to show that this tension and this dynamic didn't escape Argentina. You know, this very, very controversial, one-sided, dangerous relationship with the United States was also something that Argentina had to manage, particularly in the 20th century, as I said. We'll get there later, but it ends up having very, very serious ramifications later on in the 70s when there's another military coup, and this one is a lot more directly tied to the United States and the CIA and their involvement in Argentina. Returning to this this period of the 1930s, which is only maybe five, six years after the attempted assassination of Herbert Hoover in Buenos Aires, we do have this continued instability. The removal of the fascist government doesn't stop the workers' mobilizations. In fact, the conservatives are compelled to re-legalize the right to strike because the workers' movements are going ahead with these actions anyway after the fascists give up power. This increasing contradiction because this new government, which is led by Agustin Justo, is the general who overthrows the fascists, but is still a very, very conservative right-wing figure. He continues the policy of liberal economic opening up that benefits the upper classes, and he permits, he deliberately permits significant corruption in the industrial sector at the expense of national growth. So as a means of securing and legitimizing his rule and maintaining sort of the acquiescence of all the different factions in Argentina, he's quite happy for these sort of corrupt networks in Argentina's various industries, particularly agriculture, to really sort of cement themselves. And again, you know, strengthening these sort of economic ties with the United States and the United Kingdom particularly. This ends up reaching a breaking point in 1943. As I said, there's continued waves of strikes that paralyze the country, economic uncertainty. And what we have is the United Officers Group, which was a secret alliance of generals, sergeants, and other military figures that were progressive, that had a progressive vision for Argentina, or at the very least, a, you know, sort of sovereign, independent-minded vision for Argentina. And they overthrow Busto. They march on the Casa Rosada, which is the Argentinian presidential palace, and they overthrow the conservative-backed generals, and they take power. The most important member of this group, this United Officers group, is Juan Perón. He's not a leading figure of this movement. He gets made Minister of Workers' Relations, Industrial Relations, and for a time he's also a war minister. But he's very, very popular amongst union members. He's, he's a very pro-worker individual. He, he knows how to talk to working class people. He himself comes from quite a poor family. Uh, and he rapidly gains popularity from the very powerful trade unions and workers' movements that are now, you know, clamoring for a greater um, stake in Argentina's political future and who are, you know, really calling a lot of shots over what this new United Officers group can do once they're in charge. The rest of the United Officers are becoming aware that Juan Perón is having this increasingly close alliance with the unions. They're not as 
friendly to the union movement and to these workers' movements. In 1945, they actually turn on Peron and they jail him, even though he's not the leader of this government at all. And you've been listening to part one of the recent history of Argentina with PhD candidate and journalist Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. And next week, part two. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Imagine the furor here in Australia and perhaps overseas if human rights organisations such as Oxfam Amnesty International, Australian Red Cross, Save the Children Australia, were violently invaded, equipment and documents stolen, and soldiers welded shut their doors and left. Bad enough if they were Australian soldiers acting on behalf of the Australian government, but these soldiers are the state apparatus of an occupying force. And I'm talking about the Israeli government, Why aren't the world's governments and media screaming of the injustice instead of mostly sitting on their hands as they usually do when it comes to Israeli human rights abuses? I'm speaking with human rights activist Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees. Stuart, you've called your recent article in Pearls and Irritation Terrorist Reoccupied Israel Issues Latest Licence for Thuggery. In the article, you also allude to brutality, racism and slaughter. These actions against the human rights organisations are just the latest in a long list. It's the children who suffer a huge amount of this. Correct. The children locked up and treated in an appalling way are are mostly invisible to the West. You won't see our mainstream media ever covering that because it's military routine, it's the way Israel behaves and um, and nobody's supposed to say anything about it. I mean the killing by Israel that gets a little bit of attention a bit like um, uh, an Australian cricket score that's about as much uh, how, how seriously leading media and politicians take it. Well let's talk about these human rights organisations that have been violently shut down What have you found out? Well, I mean, they were reputable, they were scrupulous, they did uh, significant research, they exposed the abusive, murderous behaviour of the State of Israel. So if you take an organisation like Al-Haq, which is essentially a human rights organisation, very, very many people from Australia, significant academics and others have worked there and um, it's as reputable as Human Rights Watch but look this is Israel Israel's exceptional Israel can do what it likes and so so they've all been closed all of them similarly of course the um, the one which is known as um, Defend Children International hyphen Palestine which is the one that um, the organization that pay particular attention to the evidence about the treatment of arrested children. So all of them are reputable, all of them are reliable, even even the CIA, I don't usually go give praise to the CIA, but even the CIA says, you know, there's no evidence that um, they behaved anything like a terrorist. You wonder when they'll ha- who 
on having this site next? Well, anybody, well, any Palestinian, look, they, the evidence seems to be that to, they don't really treat the uh, Palestinian people as human, which gives them a, an entitlement to kill, uh, imprison, torture whom they like. That's why, I, in a way, that's why I've said that if we just call these things, these events, human rights abuses, that's such an anodyne use of language, anodyne description that nobody takes any notice. Let's call the behavior what it exactly is. I mean, my argument is that um, with all those titles of the, of the operations against against the Palestinians, or in, against the, in particular the people of Gaza, that this makes the closure of the human rights organizations inevitable. I mean, it was one thing, in a way, by recording all the slaughter of thousands of, of the Palestinians, with very, very few Israeli casualties in all the, the so-called invasions of, of Gaza. I mean, there was one set of figures that I completely um, overlooked, and that was what happened in 1948. The Nakba, the expulsion of three-quarters of a million people, the uh, erasure from the face of the earth of 500 villages and urban, urban settlements, in, which were Palestinian. What, so that what happened um, a few weeks ago in the closure of the human rights organizations is just the just the latest step following from what happened in 1948. And we have to recognise that Israel can get away with this because mainly Western countries allow it to be happening. Well, in particularly the United States. I mean, the United States and Israel are barely distinguishable. One and the same country, if you think about the the arms sales of America to um, to Israel. You'd see that the word, you know, Israeli security, American security, I just, you can't, you can't distinguish between them. And when the latest closure of all the human rights organizations occurred, the American spokesperson said they were concerned. <laughs> In other words, they, they stroked the Israeli politicians with a feather. That was about as, as, as far as they would go. Have you seen a comment by any Australian politician about what's happening? No, nothing. I haven't seen anything. I mean, uh, no, it's, um, I've had people write to me and to say, thank you for writing about this. We haven't read anything about it in the mainstream media, in other words. I mean, the, the Australian mainstream media is pathetic when it comes to basic human rights, but this is, this is actually not about basic human rights. This is about well, the, the slaughter of a whole people, the erasure of a whole people. I'm very careful at this point not to use another word. Otherwise, would, you know, people would be up in arms. But you can guess what, what I'm talking about. And also to remember this, that um, the Israelis are an occupying force when they do all these deeds against <laughs> the Palestinians. Sure. I mean, they, they break all the rules. They were, they're supposed to, if they're an occupying force, I mean, the Geneva Convention is supposed to taught them that they're not, you know, apart from anything else, they're not allowed to, to settle other people there, that they have a particular responsibility for the human rights of the people they occupy. That means nothing 
nothing. That's why when the West, of which Israel is supposed to be a part, talks about a human rights order, about a, a world order, hypocritical. And in the same week, Israel bombs Syria and sentences a, a non-government organisation's representative to 12 years in jail. Yep, the sentencing of of Al Halabi. Yeah, I mean that. There's no evidence, no evidence about his guilt whatsoever. <sighs> Israeli revenge. I mean, there are all sorts of other examples we could dig up, whereby they sentenced people, uh, um, uh, sentenced Palestinians to long years of imprisonment with no evidence against them. There's a group known as the Palestinian Five who've suffered similarly at the hands of the Israelis. I mean, what is called justice? You only have to read one article a week by Gideon Levy, the wonderful Israeli journalist, to know that the references to the Israeli high court, the Israeli court system have very little to do with, with, with justice. And then one of those organisations you were talking about is a, an organisation which tries to support children, Palestinian children, who have been jailed by Israelis and they're sentenced in a, a military court. They're the only children in the world. I mean, the world is behaving like uh, with uh, bastardry. But the Israelis, they're in the league, top of the league in that respect. They're the only country in the world who put children through a military system the kids are mostly mostly young people, um, from you know as young as twelve. They're there largely, as far as I can make out, for throwing stones. Many of them are shackled, not allowed to see lawyers, not allowed to contact their families. You know, hundreds and hundreds of them arrested and treated in that way every year. And now the organisation that's trying to to keep a record of this and represent their interests is, is closed down topic, Stuart, has to be climate change and the disastrous impact of climate change, and I dare say there are other factors as well, of what's happening to the people in, in Pakistan. Yeah, it's pretty obvious that the wealth and affluence of the West over decades, if not centuries, contributes to the vulnerability of people who have nothing or very, have very little. So that a bit in, in Arundhati Roy's word, you know, global capitalism is a big poverty-making machine. These floods have exposed huge vulnerability of a very poor people. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing people who, who emit almost no greenhouse gases into the atmosphere being punished by people, by, by countries, by the policies and cultures of the wealthy, largely the wealthy West. That's what we're seeing. And that's why I've called the floods in Pakistan a long-term human rights issue. And, of course, it's late summer there now, but can you, you can't imagine what it's going to be like in a month or two's time. Quite. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, the, the monsoon period apparently has only just begun. And as only a month ago, they were almost scorched to death. The temperatures for a very long time were in the 50-degree range. That disaster feature of 
climate change was succeeded by these catastrophic floods. It's an international problem. It has international responsibility. That's how we have to think about it. I mean, this is about a people with very few educational, healthcare, transport, uh, income or other resources. All the resources that allegedly go with respect for universal human rights are, are absent. If you don't have those rights, if you don't enjoy them, you have no resilience to um, the disasters of climate change. And the Western countries, including Australia, keep on pumping out the oil and the gas? Yeah. I mean, fortunate Australia still wants to open coal mines and, um, and drill for oil and gas. It still wants to have an income tax system that rewards people who don't need any more and don't need any more money. If an income tax system was to be administered globally, then you'd have to say that rich countries would pay very, very high taxes and regard that as beneficial. They would pay hard, uh, high taxes in order to protect the vulnerable, namely, in this case, uh, the people of developing countries. And then you wonder which country is going to get it worse next because you think the millions and millions of people in Bangladesh who live on the Delta and, you know, you've only got to have the water raise a little higher and how many millions there are under threat? Sure. Look, the, this is what has happened in Pakistan is just the, the latest chapter. But, but there have been disasters all over the place and the threat of more, the, the, the fact that the previously frozen tundra of Siberia uh, is, is melting, the glaciers in Greenland are melting in a hurry. Everybody's vulnerable. And you'd think that if for selfish reasons, not just for altruistic ones, we would respond differently to the crisis in Pakistan. We could respond selfishly because it would protect our own interests, to protect the, to bolster the human rights of of people around the globe is a statement about survival. And it's a statement which says we are all in this together. Like I said, Pakistan is not an island. We're all part of the same life support system. Yet there doesn't seem to have been a great deal of response to this tragedy. Is that how you see it? The only response is the predictable one about sending a few rescue planes. I mean, Australia sends a minuscule, I think it's one or two million bucks. Of course, there will be immediate rescue, and, and uh, it looks as though uh, Turkey and the UAE were the first countries to respond in that way. And that's inevitable, the rescue. But the rescue is pointless unless, unless there is a long-term approach, which has to last for the rest of the century, about the universality of human rights, which is really a statement about a different way of living. So that the greed of global capitalism and the destruction of violence that has gone with that system of living and uh, working and thinking has to be replaced. Perhaps at um, the Skills and Jobs seminar that's happening at the moment here in Canberra could have been replaced by something a little bit different. That's a good question, but the trouble is, I can use the words global capitalism on Radio CR, 
but that would be ruled completely out of order. You could only say it under your breath. So that the main site of the cancer of massive climate change is not really talked about. Uh, well, it's talked about in terms of replacing fossil fuels with non-polluting energy resources, with renewable energy. It's talked about in those terms, but talking about replacing global capitalism with a different world order, with a different way of thinking economically, that is not heard of. We're as silent as on that as we are about, as we are silent about the slaughter of Palestinians. And it's always great to have Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees on the program and do have a look at the online journal Pearls and Irritations. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on digital and online, 3CR Radical Radio. The newly elected President of the Philippines presented his State of the Union Address on the 25th of July, where in it he stated that the executive reports on the status of the country, unveils the government's agenda for the coming year and proposes to Congress certain legislative measures. I asked human rights activist Peter Murphy, were there any surprises? It was surprising that there was no reference at all to the human rights situation for which you know his predecessor was notorious. Also, no reference to the sort of long-standing social conflict in the country and the need for some plan, you know, to resolve it. That is, the, the peace talks option wasn't mentioned. That is alarming, um, and it's weird to have it, uh, you know, not the bombastic sort of ugly speech from Duterte, but this sort of quiet and just leaving it all out sort of speech from the new president, uh, Marcos Jr., would you really have expected human rights to be on the agenda? Yes, I think so. It's, uh, it's an international problem for the Philippines that it's the focus of reporting at the UN Human Rights Council that made decisions to refuse entry into the country of people from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. The predecessor is under investigation by the International Criminal Court. There's not many countries in the world in that situation, you know. Ignoring it completely is is a way of saying, uh, I think expressing contempt for the international community, signalling that there won't be change. Although there were no specific statements on these really important issues from our point of view, the president, the incoming president, did say he was going to carry on the broad economic programs and some uh, the, the war on drugs, etc. Uh, of his predecessor. So th- these are also pretty uh, bad policies, uh, given the, the level of inequality and poverty in the country has really taken another leap downwards, you know, since uh, he came to power, partly because of the pandemic, but mainly because of Duterte's response to the pandemic. It's just a very different style, but unfortunately, I think the same policy. What could you have hoped regarding the peace talks? I think uh, every president coming into power since 1992 has actually restarted the peace talks or started them, beginning with President Ramos way back then, undertook extensive initiatives really to calm the national situation because it was a huge liability to the Philippines 
from whichever point of view you came, uh, that there were so many coups and that there was a long-running insurgency um, and there was you know, really very incompetent management of public services like electricity. So Ramos did a lot and uh, he did initiate this agenda for peace talks, which is still outstanding and uh, still available to the current president, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. And, you know, when Estrada uh, came to power in 1998, he had restarted the peace talks, which Ramos hadn't concluded. And uh, when Arroyo replaced him abruptly in 2001, she initially said positive things about the peace talks, but rapidly dumped them. And then when she was finally replaced by Aquino Jr., or Benigno Aquino III, he also restarted the peace talks. There was optimism there. That also uh, petered out. And then when Duterte won in 2016, he also put about 18 months into efforts on the peace talks. So uh, a lot of that is just repositioning everybody to start them again. But there was significant progress made under Duterte in that little period on the uh, first substantive agenda item in the uh, peace agenda, which was for social and economic reforms. And, and there was virtually an agreement to sign when he cancelled the whole thing. You know, it's, it's uh, actually unusual that this new president came in and didn't have a go at uh, starting off these talks and seeing if some real change could be achieved. I think that uh, the human rights advocates in the Philippines and that broadly takes in the farmers' movement, the trade union movement, the uh, women's movement, the students, the professionals, the churches. They are really bracing themselves for you know, a deepening of the human rights crisis. I'd imagine that the human rights organisations at the UN and other human rights organisations internationally have taken note of the omissions in that speech? Yes, I'm, I'm sure they have. We certainly, in the, in the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, we immediately highlighted this omission and drew out its significance. It's also, it was a similar thing in his inauguration speech, which was even vaguer and, and was short too. So I think um, I'm afraid we're getting the message. There's one counterpoint to this, that the new president appointed a new national security advisor, uh, Dr. Carlita Carlos, and she immediately called for an end to the red-tagging um, methods used by the Duterte presidency, saying that they were uh, counterproductive based on nothing but prejudice and that there had to be a return to some kind of lawful process. That was quite sharp, but uh, in, in the ensuing months, she seems to have made no progress uh, in terms of the formation of a new team around her in the National Security Council. There's some predictions that she will be frozen out and possibly forced to resign. It's hard to know, and I don't want to be pessimistic, and I think it was an initiative of uh, the new president to appoint her to give some kind of signal that he wasn't the same as his father, nor was he exactly the same as Duterte, but I don't think that's really working out. What about the membership of the ICC? The uh, Philippines joined the, it's called ratified the Rome Statute 
in 2011, so it was a little bit late joining in the jurisdiction uh, that was under President Aquino. I think that his predecessor, uh, Gloria Arroyo, would not, never have done that. But it's not so much a personal decision of the, the president, but a process of the, you know, the Congress to withdraw from a treaty really up to the Senate in the Philippines. It could easily have been done that this president said, I'm going to ask the uh, Congress to confirm that we, we will be cancelling our withdrawal from the Rome Statute and therefore the ICC, well, Philippines would continue to be within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. But he didn't do that. I think a signal that uh, uh, he's committed to protecting uh, the Duterte family so not so much Sarah Duterte, his vice president, but uh, the former president, Rodrigo Duterte, from direct uh, action from the court. You can't protect uh, the former president from you know, problems if he does travel internationally to a country that is within the jurisdiction of the ICC. Um, because if a warrant is issued and it hasn't yet been issued, then he could be apprehended um, in another country and taken to trial in The Hague. President Marcos Jr. can't really stop all of that, but he can certainly um, make sure that the ICC can't come to the Philippines. There can't be any action taken against Duterte in the Philippines. But there are other methods for bringing him to justice? No. Not at all? No, that's the whole problem. <laughs> that's the problem, that... Uh, the ICC doesn't even come into play unless the national judiciary fails to deal with an, out, you know, an egregious crime. This is what the International Criminal Court's prosecutor has found, that the domestic jurisdiction in the Philippines has failed to deal with the outstanding and really very serious allegation that the presidency of Duterte was involved in mass killing of unarmed civilians in the so-called drug war. Yeah, there's um, no jurisdiction um, except the ICC, and if he doesn't come within their territories, then uh, nothing will happen to him. And, so, and, of course, no other country can issue an extradition or any other kind of warrant for his arrest because that would have to be implemented by... Philippine police and they failed to do anything about all of these killings. I mean, they're, they're the people doing the killings. So it's, um, yeah, nothing's going to happen. It's a challenge to the international community and, and I hope when the ICC does issue the warrant uh, for his arrest or the arrest of other senior officials with him, that the, the international community sits up properly and starts to withdraw cooperation with the government in the Philippines because that's the only real pressure, I think, that will have any impact. Well, then, what's the universal periodic review of the Philippines? That's a process undertaken through the United Nations Human Rights Council. It's a system whereby every country, like including Australia, is considered on its human rights record, I think, every three years. The... Universal Periodic <coughs> Review for the Philippines is underway this year. There was already hearings in uh, March. This session coming up in November is the follow-up to those hearings. It's an important forum because its member 
States of the United Nations and particularly the member states of the Human Rights Council who hear the evidence, who can ask questions and who can call for action. It was this uh, universal periodic review record that was building up on the Philippines uh, which led to uh, Michelle Bachelet as the High Commissioner getting a call from the Human Rights Council to report in writing to them on the situation, uh, which she did in 2020. But unfortunately, this momentum there stalled. Right now, people like us in the Human Rights Network around the world have to look to the Universal Periodic Review to try to reignite the process within the Human Rights Council. But meanwhile, the human rights abuses in the Philippines continue unabated. Yes, I think that's that's the situation. Uh, we saw during the elections that arrests on trumped-up charges, just blatant political arrests, some political killings and uh, some disappearances took place, uh, all related to politics. We've had the promise of the incoming administration to continue the drug operations or anti-drug operations. And as far as I know, the um, police continue to kill people who they have on a list of suspects. It's completely illegal to be doing this. And there's a real huge amount of evidence that the police claim that uh, these victims were um, resisting arrest uh, is false. There's a lot of evidence that those killed were manacled, handcuffed, otherwise um, restrained, and they were shot at point-blank range, things like that. Often the police records will show that the the uh, weapon that the victim was allegedly using to resist was used in five or six or more different cases of alleged resistance. So they're, they're just planting the evidence. Yeah, it's, it's a really blatant, brazen human rights uh, aggression and abuse going on in the name of anti-drug operations. There's no abatement and the much smaller number of cases, but still hundreds of cases of uh, people killed for political reasons, that's it's also continuing. We've got a big problem. Governments like uh, Australia, the United States and Canada, Japan, South Korea are really pretty well implicated in all of this because they know what's going on and they've continued to pour money and weapons into the army and the police over all these six years of Duterte and this continues now under the new president. Who is Steve Tooley? He's a senior member of the Council of the Cordillera People's Alliance. I've met him many times over the couple of decades I've been travelling in the Philippines and uh, he's a highly regarded leader of Indigenous people in the northern part of Luzon and of course he's been targeted with red tagging and threats just in the last couple of days of August he was abducted he was the last person to leave his office I think he was going to a nearby shop to get some food and five people in a van just jumped out and grabbed him and put him in the van and took him took him away for hours actually took him away for two days in the end he was very disoriented he was uh, given lectures about what a great uh, job the National Task Force to end local communist armed conflict is doing that's the outfit created under Duterte, which is really responsible for very systematic and methodical red tagging and uh, harassment and political killings. Of course, he was really freaked out, thought he would be killed. 
Uh, they demanded that he sign a statement, and after this went on for a couple of days, he, he did sign it. And he had a covering over his head the whole time and couldn't see who was with him or where he was. But uh, they took the hood off him. But, of course, all of them were wearing masks, so he couldn't identify them. And they, they just dumped him a few hours' walk away from his home. Eventually, he, he, he got to friends and was able to tell his story. So he's lucky to be alive. I don't know what the consequences of the document he signed are. I don't know what the content is. But I would say that the trouble for Steve is, is not over. This kind of terrorising of communities and really of well-regarded leaders is unfortunately part of the norm. This case is just, you know, a week ago. I think it's a sign to us that under the new president, Marcos uh, Jr., the same sorts of policies continue. It would be great to think that um, the new National Security Advisor is really trying to push back on the NTF LCAC, but I'd say that's not really going to happen. We should really face up to the, the situation and start to increase our efforts to press for change in the Philippines from outside. Is the survival of a person of his stature unusual? Others would have been killed? Yes, others have disappeared completely. Presumably they were killed. There's a relief in, the, in that, that he surfaced again. Sometimes that happens, sometimes if he's the only case. But, uh, yeah, unfortunately other people from his own organisation have never resurfaced. Can I just take you to East Timor for a couple of minutes, Peter? A press release which says, the decoration of Indonesian heartbreaking. Indonesian general, it should say. This is... Uh, Strange thing that um, there's a sort of order of merit or a medal of merit which uh, Timorese uh, government can award to different people, and uh, the um, president cited or announced uh, August 18 to uh, award four medals and um, one each to the chiefs of staff of the Portuguese military, the Australian military, and the Indonesian military for their support for the strengthening of the armed forces of Timor-Leste. But the fourth one went to a general who's retired, therefore not a commander at present. He was actually the chief of intelligence for Indonesia and the minister for intelligence. Now he's retired but considered to be a very influential person in uh, Indonesian politics. In the citation uh, issued by President Horta, it said that he was given the award because of his being a veteran of Operation Seroya, the Bahasa word for Lotus, Operation Lotus. And Operation Lotus was the name given to the invasion of Timor-Leste in December, on December 7, 1975, and continued through the actual occupation continued for 24 years. But I think Operation Lotus continued to the end of 78 when the formal sort of resistance of the Timorese side was crushed and the commander, Nicolao Lobato, was killed in, in action. In these, just those uh, nearly three years, I think, uh, there was uh, at least 200,000 Timorese killed, uh, either by combat, bombing, aerial bombing of civilians, artillery or starvation. The women's organisation in Timor and the organisation of the families of the those combatants who were killed 
they can't believe their ears, you know, that President Ramaswata did this and they, they're really upset. You'd have to appreciate that just about everybody in Timor-Leste has suffered trauma and uh, there's a huge unmet need of treatment of this trauma and, and this kind of uh, action only triggers more trauma in the communities. The people have called on President Ramaswata to apologise for what he did to cancel that declaration and to do something positive for expanding the services for PTSD treatment uh, in the community in Timor-Leste. Um, we can only speculate on why this uh, particular declaration was awarded. could be the influence of uh, Shanana Gusmao, who's very close, I think, to Indonesian uh, military people. It could be that Ramasorta, who really wants Timor-Leste to become a member of ASEAN, has done this to somehow curry favour with Indonesia, which is the most important voice in ASEAN. But uh, we really don't know the answer. President Horta is making a state visit to Australia this week, so um, it may be that um, some media people can, or people who can get close to him can ask him to explain what, what happened here. They must have predicted the outcome of this, the, the outpouring of grief from the families. They'd have to have been very insensitive not to have thought this could be one of the reactions, yeah. There was a gathering um, a week ago at the Nicolau Lobato Memorial near the airport in Dili, which was relatively well attended by these women's and uh, competence families organisations, and uh, so they've certainly made their voices heard in, in Dili. Thank you, Peter. You're welcome. Glad to talk to you again, Jan. Human rights activist Peter Murphy. My name is Todd Fernando. I'm the Victorian Commissioner for LGBTIQ plus communities and you're listening to 3CR. With China constantly being accused of insufferable secrecy and a lack of openness about security and defence arrangements amongst partners in the Pacific, the shoe, when on the other foot, sits just as well. In the case of Australia, it is particularly snug. Though are the words of... Benoit Kampmark, we are led to wonder what Pacific Island nations, even China, think about Australia's often secret arrangements with the US. Many arrangements that Australian citizens know little or nothing about, some that have been in place since the 1950s, others in recent times. Indeed, as a paranoia about China reaches a crescendo, what secret deals have our governments entered into with Pacific nations. Today, we have one example. Perhaps more will come to light. And I am speaking with academic and writer Benoit Kampmark. Benoit, before we seek answers to what is planned for Fiji, Australians have been kept in the dark for decades about so-called security defence arrangements with the US, the US military facilities in Australia as well. Okay, well, thank you, Jan, for the question. So there's a general sort of uh, situation in Australia which is quite strange, which is this kind of attitude that, on the one hand, other countries have agreements with uh, make arrangements, for example, in the South Pacific, in this case with China. The accusations then made that these are not transparent and these are, of course, meant to be secretive and so on. And there's a big hoo-ha, of course, in Canberra about this. But unfortunately, Australia has its own secret arrangements with the United States government in various areas of security, 
military operations and so forth. Your listeners will be familiar most recently with, of course, the uh, AUKUS arrangement, which was organized and arranged so secretly that most of the, even the security establishment in Canberra did not know about it. That's how secret it was. So secret, in fact, that uh, the a close ally, France, did not know and, of course, was essentially cheated out of its own submarine contract with the Australian government. So that's the level of secrecy we're talking about here. So that's, of course, the tip of the iceberg when we think about it, when we think of the fact that the Pine Gap facility, which has been operating for decades now in central Australia, even to this day, what we've gotten... There, are, there have been some excellent works that have come out, for example, from the Nautilus Institute of Security and Sustainability that have looked at what this signal intelligence site supposedly does. Uh, it's almost guaranteed that the signals intelligence role that that site plays, it's meant to be a U.S. joint U.S.-Australian facility, but it's overwhelmingly run by the United States. What that facility does is coordinate, for example, drone strikes in other countries. So it's been implicated, for example, in coordinating drone strikes in uh, Waziristan and drone strikes, for example, in Yemen and places like that. So it's very disconcerting to realize that Australian soil has essentially been subjected to the use of these things which many Australians do not actually realize. And a lot of this was brought out as well in a discussion in the case involving uh, the pilgrims, as they were called, you know, who, of course, infiltrated the Pine military base and ended up being uh, charged. But one very telling feature was that evidence could not be adduced and was not adduced by the government, rebutting any claims that the base itself was being used for drone strikes and crimes against, you know, war crimes and crimes against humanity and so on. So that was a very telling victory for the pilgrims, as it were, because it put the Australian government in a very awkward position. And because they did not reveal and rebut these claims, that particular element of the case fell. To this day, with Pine Gap, and the Pine Gap is but one place, we also are not too familiar with some of the more rotational aspects of U.S. Marines, for example, in the north and, and certainly in, in the Northern Territory. We do know that the previous government, with Peter Dutton as defense minister, allocated large funds to upgrade facilities to enable greater access for U.S. personnel and military and maritime personnel. A lot of this probably in anticipation of AUKUS, but it also has been very opaque as to the nature of how this funding actually works and the nature about what is going to be uh, being put forth together. The Australian government has always been very keen to suggest that it doesn't have, with the United States, an agreement that permits a U.S. garrison. But I would argue that that's exactly what is happening in Australia. US, the U.S. is garrisoning Australia in anticipation of uh, conflict with China. And these are comments that have been made also quite openly by uh, various U.S congressmen who've actually made that remark that uh, now in light of China's growing role in the Indo-Pacific, it's about time that Australia perhaps considers garrisoning itself with U.S. personnel. Um, and and uh, this is actually on the record. This is not even something that's speculative. Not So that's the kind of overview of that situation of lack of transparency and sheer secrecy of Australia's security arrangements with the United States. 
And then we move on to Fiji and what looks like a military base being constructed there. And the people of Fiji know little about that either. Yes, this is an interesting state of affairs that, that transpired very recently. And, and it's, um, the Australian government has made very little mention about it in the press here, very little discussion about it taking place. And also, I might add, very little discussion taking place in Fiji. Uh, and this entails a particular facility, a proposed facility to be built um, in the area of Lamy on Namawami Street in Fiji itself, which is supposedly going to cost in the order of 83 million so, or so dollars. It's meant to promise 445 jobs and so forth, and it's called rather sort of, uh, and again, a title that doesn't really say much, a Maritime Essential Services Center. And that could mean, of course, anything. Supposedly, it's meant to be a center that deals with maritime surveillance. It's meant to deal with hydrographic monitoring. It's meant to also provide facilities as a naval headquarters and so forth. But the Fijian prime minister has said that it is meant to, and, and this gives a clue as to what it's meant to do, to combat internal and external threats. So this is suggestive of something more than just, say, climate change or climactic monitoring. It's suggesting a, a more military role, even though the Fiji military have said, and Fijian officials along with Australian officials have said that they do not intend to militarize the area. But the catch is this, the location is actually in a suburban area. It is going to affect local residents. And local residents have been expressing concerns, one, that they have not been consulted extensively about this, two, that they will be affected. There have been concerns that, for example, the safety of children during the construction phases, uh, the safety of residents in terms of whether it might become a future target in any conflict. You know, it's, uh, the fact is that this is getting, situations getting rather hairy. And perhaps the most, and this comes back to the secrecy theme today we're talking about, the fact is that there were several consultations that took place supposedly, but it doesn't seem very clear what was provided at each of these consultations. So there was one in, uh, open consultation supposedly started in July 2019, followed by another in December 2021, then February 2022, and then a few in August. But it transpires that only in August was there actually a discussion that involved Australian officials and a Fijian delegation to speak to the residents in Nami. And it transpired, much to their surprise, that this kind of development was going apace and these concerns had not been addressed. What happened was that the Australian delegation did not answer questions and concerns about, for example, children's safety, property devaluation, and whether they would become, of course, military targets. Instead, the High Commission reserved uh, responses and avoided these points in an email that was subsequently sent saying that there would be jobs, that this was a good project, and in any case, they had to pick this site, the suburban site, because the two other sites, for example, like Togolevu and the Bilo battery site, were inadequate, one because of uh, soil or land integrity issues, and the other because it was a national heritage site. So again, it demonstrated the general tendency of not involving people, hoodwinking them, and essentially telling them, but don't worry about it. It's a non-military facility. There will be no ammunition there. There will be no weapons and ammunition kept at this supposed 
essential service centre for maritime facilities. And uh, the residents should be happy with 445 as yet non-existent jobs. So this is one of the, this again demonstrates almost the contempt shown by the governments towards their residents when it comes to military facilities. You mentioned both internal and external aspects to this. What's the internal? It's not very clear. This is uh, the thing that's not very clear at all. I suppose because it is a facility for monitoring, um, well, more internal, I suppose, is, is closer in terms of uh, domestic uh, maritime matters. That's probably what is meant by the term internal, whereas the external threats would be from a foreign power. So I think that's probably what is meant by the mentioning of any local internal threats. So it's sort of, yeah, the local shipping element. You know, so for example, matters of shipping or matters rather of fish security, uh, fish industries and so on. So I think that's what the reference is too. But by the same token, again, it's a bit, it's a bit vague. If you look at the details that are provided on the Australian Defence Department website, there are a list of, uh, to use that awful word, deliverables uh, that refer to various facilities. And they're very careful to avoid specific mention of any military security aspect, but they're very up on the the eco-language. Uh, they want to make it trendy. They talk about how this proposed facility is uh, going to be self-sufficient um, and uh, f- friendly to the environment. So these are the sorts of things that are being advertised rather than specific military roles. Are alarm bells ringing at all in Fiji by the people? Yes, there's certainly a lot of concern. So if you monitor aspects of the Fijian press, um, the Fiji Times, for example, has certainly documented uh, deep concern by more specifically residents and so forth, and who've said that uh, they've, they've been left in the dark about this situation. They're simply not sure. But, of course, the, the problem is that this is an agreement that's gone along with by the Fijian government, you know, who sees that this government does sees it as an opportunity for you know, uh, further investment, infrastructure development, and so on. So we're, we're left with essentially a rather secretive funding arrangement and secret facility, of which we're told is supposedly non-military and yet has distinctly military overtones, And if you look at the appropriate statements. And we are left with the implications here about how these sorts of deals are done and the residents left in the dark. So we're left with this strange mirror-like situation that for all the criticisms being made of China's, uh, for example, security pact with the Solomon Islands, we see something very similarly and something similar done in the context of Fiji with Australia. Well, 83 million is a lot of money and I'm just wondering which department's budget is this money coming from? Oh, it's coming from that most opaque of departments, uh, that that most... uh, and notorious of areas of policy regarding budgeting, which is defense. So that money, most of it will be coming out of uh, Department of Defense from the Australian side, but uh, there'll be some from the foreign affairs uh, portfolio, and there'll be some, of course, in the context of Fiji's own government. But but again, as as a kind of a a breakdown, it also remains um, unclear. But uh, because, and this is a clue, that it's not just a, you can't really treat it as a non-military kind of thing because it is it is brought out from the budget outlay to f- dealing with Australia's own security. And so therefore we have to conclude that it's defence-related and that's, that's the critical factor there.
And $83 million is a great deal of money. It is, and that's why it gives a clue that this is a serious affair. And if we look at you know, what this facility is meant to do, it is, it is going to be a monitoring facility, but then it may also be more than that. It may also be a, a facility that's, that's also meant to be, to use a better word, defensive. And for that reason, you have to think that if it's going to be of this, of this order, then it's like a fortification. It's like an improvement of defense uh, in light of the recent political developments that's been happening. And if we consider the timeline, of course, the timeline of this has been developing as Australian-Chinese relations has worsened, you know, with consultations, as I said, already starting in 2019. You know, it's, it's very much a suggestion that this is going to be yet another example of as Australia's step-up program in terms of responding to China's efforts in the, in the South Pacific. Well, then you wonder how many other South Pacific nations are in line for similar or different monies coming from Australia to challenge China? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think, and, and it's, uh, expect more of this. And I think, you know, as we start, you know, this, this is a, a you know, uh, an indication that there will be more money flowing the way of other Pacific countries. And of course, if they are wanting to play their cards well, um, they could technically get funding from both China and Australia in certain, you know, to beef up their particular security arrangements. But uh, that, that will raise the question, of course, as to what, um, how this will be accommodated in terms of their foreign policy. But it's very clear that that Pacific Island states are trying to reach accords with um, be it Canberra, be it Beijing, and the question is how this is going to be accommodated in a in a way that's peaceful. Unfortunately, the rhetoric coming from the major capitals that are dealing with this is not very positive in this regard, and so this is where you know the jitters start setting in. Would you expect or not that the U.S. is involved in this project? Well, I wouldn't rule that out, but um, I think because this is part of the Australian step-up program where they're trying to nudge out China or certainly to let other Pacific Island states know that the Australian taxpayer and the purse is open for business. So the fact that China may well have its own infrastructure projects, its own promises and so on, but this is trying to uh, reiterate Australia's more traditional role uh, in the region as being the chief donor, the chief provider, um, and, and in recent years, of course, the chief uh, supplier of security services and so forth. And so this is consistent with that particular line. The U.S., of course, historically has seen Australia as a deputy policing agent in the region. So in a sense, this continues that theme. But Having said that, we, we shouldn't forget the recent uh, frenetic activity from the U.S. State Department and the Biden administration towards the region that they want to be more involved. They are setting up more diplomatic missions. So it has been suggested in Canberra and certainly in some circles that this is because uh, Washington is displeased with Australia not taking an interest, a deeper interest in the region and letting China muscle in under their watch. Uh, but So there's no question there'll be more U.S. involvement, and uh, I do see that certainly happening, whether it's jointly with Australia, whether it's a more independent thing, we'll have to see. 
Well, Benoit, it's good to know that our taxes are being put to good use. <laughs> yes, yes, it's very unfortunate that when we do uh, go to the polls and uh, when we do participate in the Australian democratic process, there is no place anywhere. It's unusual. Some countries actually do have more leeway about the way our funds are spent in defence and wars and so on, but Australia actually quite distinctly does not have that particular proviso. We uh, do not have the means of actually telling the governments uh, of the day, don't go to war and don't spend money on ridiculous projects that might get us all killed. So that's not something, sadly, that this country has. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much. Always, Jeff. Thank you very much. And I've been speaking with Dr. Binoy Campmark, who lectures at RMIT University here in Melbourne. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.